do any kind of science communication at all, I try to help post it and whatever they're doing. So, um, all right, we should be live. Hey everyone, Fraser here. Uh, once again, it's time for Open Space where we're going to be doing a live conversation with uh, sometimes just me, sometimes a special guest. This week I've got a very special guest, astronaut Ron Guerin. Ron, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Hey Fraser, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Now, now you've got, uh, so can you give people like your, just your brief history? Uh, I mean, you got a, a bunch of great, amazing things that you've done, but why don't you let people know who you are? Well, let's see, uh, where to start? Uh, <laughs> Fighter jets, uh, astronaut, writer, you know. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why I'm laughing later when we start talking about the book. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a former NASA astronaut. Uh, I went the traditional route, if you will, to NASA. I was a, I was a military fighter pilot, became a test pilot, and was selected from uh, the cadre of uh, test pilots. Um, I was in the class of 2000. Uh, my first mission with NASA was not in space. It was on the bottom of the ocean in Aquarius. Uh, I did a three-week mission on NEMO, uh, which is, uh, you know, Aquarius is the world's only undersea laboratory. And that was an amazing uh, experience. Uh, it gave me my first taste of the awe and wonder of our planet from a really unique perspective. Uh, it was a lunar mission uh, or a simulated lunar mission, uh, but we were developing a lunar surface exploration uh, techniques. We did a lot of telemedicine. Uh, we had a surgical robot on board that, and we did uh, uh, telerobotic surgery and, and uh, a lot of, you know, we basically simulated that we were on a moon base. And, yeah. And how are we going to, how are we going to uh, explore the surface? Uh, I flew my first flight uh, in 2008. I was on uh, space shuttle discovery for STS 124. We brought up and installed the Japanese laboratory at the space station. And I did uh, three EVAs, three spacewalks on that mission. And then I flew again in 2011 after launching from Kazakhstan from Baikonur in a, in a Soyuz spacecraft uh, for a, a five and a half month mission uh, on Expedition 27-28. And uh, you are no longer uh, an astronaut, right? You're, as you said, you're, you're, you're no longer working as an astronaut. You are uh, sort of the follow-on career. <laughs> so, what, so what comes after being an astronaut? Um, so, you know, I left NASA uh, in 2013 and I left with a call to action. I, I really felt an obligation, a responsibility to share the perspective that I've been given of our planet um, from, that, from the vantage point of space. Um, because I think it's a really compelling perspective, a, a perspective that can lead to profound problem solving, uh, to unity of our species, uh, to unity of the planet. And so everything I've done since leaving uh, NASA has been uh, to either literally or figuratively bring people up to, to that perspective. You know, I wrote the book, The Orbital Perspective. I have two more books coming out. I have a podcast that's coming out. I'm working on a documentary film. Uh, I, I started painting. And, and trying yeah. To well, and, and you're not alone in that. I mean, every astronaut who I've had a chance, the honor of talking to has expressed some version of that, that, mm. that there's something about being in space that changes you profoundly about the way you perceive the the planet and your your role in it. So can you talk a bit about that, about like what what that was like for you and I guess how that has impacted how you're leading your life now? Sure. I mean, I, b before I do, though, the main tenet of the book, The Orbital Perspective, is that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective, right? So so in. But in, it helps. 
<laughs> but in my last book, I, I, I included many stories of people who had never been to space who have this, this perspective of our planet. But I think, you know, when I first got, got back, um, you know, people would ask me, maybe not on my first mission, on my second mission, a lot of people would ask me, um, what has anything changed in me? And I, and I used to say, no, I don't think really anything changed. Anything, any beliefs, philosophies uh, that I had before I launched, I think were just um, amplified, uh, confirmed maybe. Uh, but I think after having you know a number of years to, to processes, I, I think the main thing that changed in me was my definition of the word home. And you know, I think my, my definition of the word home has expanded to include the planet. Uh, and the beauty of that is that, you know, broadening your definition of the word home does not come with it a requirement to forget where you came from, your national, ethnic, uh, you know, uh, cultural uh, identities, political identities. It simply means seeing those things in the context of the bigger picture and the bigger ecosystem, if you will. And so you are, um, we'll get right to it. You're working on a new book. Yep. Uh, and this is like the, this is what, this is your third book? So, well, it will, well, I don't know. It depends on which, I have two that are coming out. I have a children's book called Railroad to the Moon, yep. uh, which, it, which is a, about a little girl who uh, somehow gets to go to the moon. Um, and uh, I, I won't give that away how she gets there. Um, but uh, she ends up becoming the, uh, the mayor of Armstrong City on the moon in the year 2068 on the 100th anniversary of Apollo 8. And so that, that's a book that's uh, done, but it's, it's, uh, not in publication yet. I, we, we, we're still working on that. Uh, but the other book is called Floating in Darkness. Yeah. Uh, and it is more or less a sequel to the orbital perspective. You know, the orbital perspective really tackled the need for planetary collaboration. Uh, from the, And it did that from the vantage point of, of space, of trying to zoom out to see the big picture. Um, but what, you know, as much as the orbital perspective dealt with outer space, uh, flowing in darkness has two sides of the coin. It's not just outer space, it's inner space as well. So uh, really dives into some deep subjects, um, religion, spirituality, uh, science, uh, and, and how those all intersect and, and how they're not mutually exclusive. Um, so I want to, uh, normally I kind of hog the guest's time, um, but, uh, and the people who are watching, I want to encourage you, I'm going to relinquish a lot of control today and, and pass a lot of your questions, uh, over to Ron so we can sort of figure out, learn more about what it's like to be an astronaut, especially some of these, some of these themes. But, um, you know, the book right now is still, uh, you're still writing it. You're, I, according to the, the publishizer, you're what, 75% through at this point? Yeah. Maybe maybe it's a little more than that. Um, I'm, I'm it's I'm starting to wrap it up, and I'm really really excited uh, about how it's how it's coming out. And you know, the orbital perspective, I, I really enjoy having written the orbital project. I'm proud of the book. I'm proud of the message. Uh, but it wasn't actually fun to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know? it's funny. You know, it's that idea, right? Like you write one book, and that teaches you to never write another book. Or well, I mean, you're, you're willing to go through that process again, but it is, it's never easy, but it's often worthwhile. No, but the, but the floating, writing floating in darkness has been a joy. I've been writing it oh, for about, about three years now. And what I did with the orbital perspective is I went the tr traditional route. I found, you know, I had a literary agent. We, 
we pitched the, the idea for the book to a, a number of publishers. We found a publisher that was willing to take on the project. And I, you know, I had deadlines and I would you know, <laughs> go, I actually go to the Lunar Planetary Institute for like six hours or, or eight hours a day and, and, and write and write. Um, what I did with this book is I, I, I'm not, I'm not just with, with floating in darkness. I'm not just launching a book. I'm launch, I, I want to launch a movement, a, a movement of people who are, um, you know, get, want to get away from the divisive, uh, you know, us versus them, two-dimensional uh, world that we've somehow, you know, created, especially in, in recent um, months and years, and embrace a platform of awe and wonder, embrace, embrace, embrace a platform of unity, um, and to realize that we're not going to get uh, overcome the challenges that we face if we don't if we don't do it together. And so, with that book, I purposely did not get a, a, a publisher. I wrote when I felt inspired to write, and um, what I'm doing right now is I launched a crowdfunding campaign on Publishizer.com, and the purpose of that is not to raise money for the book. The, the purpose of that is to build a community, to build yeah. a groundswell of support around the messages, the message of the unifying messages of the book, uh, and to you know build this momentum so that it gets picked up by a major publisher. I really would like a major publisher to pick this up because I want a publisher that's going to uh, be willing to dedicate the resources necessary for the marketing and the promotion of the book so that we get it out to the, to the widest audience possible. And I think one of the, one of the obligations I feel is that through the, the way I'm writing this book, it's going to reach across the spec, the political spectrum, you know, national spectrum, it's going to be, it's going to reach everybody. And so you know, normally when I talk, when I, when I do, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm preaching to, to folks who already understand, you know, about the bigger picture, but we have a really unique opportunity now to reach folks that in a lot of cases, other people would have given up on a long time ago. And we have this tremendous opportunity and I want, I want to make sure that we make the most of it. It's a, it's a funny thing. Like I think the, the internet allowed us as, as human beings to interact in this kind of in this unfettered way that has been incredible. I mean, you know, here we are, uh, I'm on Vancouver Island. I have no idea where you're located, uh, somewhere in the US. Neither do I. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't know. Maybe in space, maybe on Earth. Um, no, I'm in T and, Tucson, Arizona. Oh, there you go. And and we are, and we're chatting. And you know, we organized the whole thing. So I mean, the chance to be able to reach out and connect with other human beings is unprecedented, right. and and for good, but also as you know, but also in sort of this time of like hot takes and and even purposeful sort of divisions that are being sewed around. Um, it's a chance for people to kind of get their, you know, get their get get angry at each other. But it but it feels to me like like this is more like like we've all it's our first interaction with some new way. It's like a I don't know, like a the first time a, the body sees a new virus and it has this kind of response. But it's building up an immune system. And I think that immune system is that we're going to learn to get along and we're going to learn to to be polite. And then we're going to learn to uh, try to sort of think about people's, you know, expect almost like uh, uh, expect that people are better than our first instinct and to try and come at it from that perspective. And that's, you know, it's often a like time and time again, that's the theme on, on my channel is, you know, I never get mad. I never get, I never get into big arguments. I'm always filled with awe and inspiration for what we're doing in space. 
And, and I think that that's important. I think, you know, and hopefully the people who like that, who don't want to be around a big fight can kind of come together and just be, and just share in that awe and have, by all means, have disagreements, but you don't have to be right. nasty about it. And I, you know, personally, I find it, you know, maybe it's because I'm a Canadian, you know, and I'm just like, ugh, I have no interest whatsoever in, in any of those fights and hot takes and any of that. So that all sounds wonderful. Um, it's interesting that you put it in those terms because, you know, I talked about building a movement. I talked about building community and, and really another way to say that is, is what I'm asking people to, to be is, you know, white blood cells in a, in a, in a growing immune response. To yes. kill our world, right? Yeah. And I think so that's that, it. That, that is the message of the book is to be a part of the solution, to be a part of the immune response uh, to heal our planet because our planet is, is in dire straits. Yeah, I mean, and that's not the only thing. So it would be interesting, you know, I mean, whether there'll be some kind of technology solution that assists us in recognizing that someone is attempting to, to, you know, rile us up or whether we just have practice to kind of just not rise to the occasion there. I really think there is sort of a next level of conversation. Let's take advantage of all the connectivity, but then not be sort of as aggressive in each other's faces and maybe actually come together and solve some problems. So like I said, uh, I hope you've all had a chance to to think about a bunch of questions that you want to ask Ron. Again, you've got an astronaut here. This is your chance. Um, so this question comes from uh, Yamagashi-san. Uh, how do astronauts deal with itches in spacesuits? Oh yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> well, the only thing the only thing that you can... Maybe you can scratch an itch on your nose. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a little pad inside your helmet it's a val it's to help you valsalva to clear your ears if you, for pressure changes. Um, and you can maybe lean over and, and, and scratch your nose on that. And that's about it. Other than that, you're, you're out of luck. You just got to live with it. <laughs> and so, and so, I mean, you did spacewalks where you can be outside for hours, like eight yeah. hours at a, at a time. And if there's any part of your body that's not sort of up to par, then you just got to deal with it while you're out in the middle of, of space. That's right. Um, yeah, suck it up. <laughs> um, so Arjun asks, um, uh, if SpaceX had a call for astronauts to go to Mars, would you go? So now that you're a retired astronaut, you know, are you still a freelancer? Would you still? I, I would go to Mars on a round trip. I, yes. wouldn't, go on a, I wouldn't go on a one-way trip to Mars. So, so what, what do you think about that? Because... Like Earth is excellent. Earth is really a fantastic place. So My favorite planet. It's, yeah, yeah. What is, you know, how do you sort of put that in perspective? Because there's a lot of people that I think would go to Mars and they'd go there for forever if they could, or so they think they would. Do they, do they understand what it will be like? Well, I mean, I, I can't speak for other people, but um, I know that if, if I was going there on a one-way trip, it, it might be exciting for a few weeks. It might be pretty cool. And then eventually you'll, you, I would say to myself, you know, what am I going to do here? <laughs> <laughs> you can't even go outside without wearing a spacesuit. And, yeah. uh, and uh, when, when, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's going to be exciting to explore. It's going to be exciting to hopefully, you know, uh, search for signs of, of ancient life on Mars. And, and you know, I don't mean to, to lessen the impact and the importance of that. Um, but you know when when uh, explorers set out and explored new worlds on Earth, they they lived off the land when they got there. It's going to be very difficult to do that uh, on, on Mars. I'm not saying we can't do that, but it's going to it's going to be very challenging, and it's going to be they're going to 
the folks who do that are going to face a lot of hardships. And, um, you know, I, I think um, I would love to go and I'd love to participate that. But, uh, you know, I love this planet too much. It's too it's too beautiful. I've, I've, I've gotten to fall in love with our planet and uh, I, I wouldn't want to leave it permanently. Yeah. Um, same with I mean, same with the moon. You'll you know, if if you got the call to go up there and uh, and do one of those uh, expeditions oh, I have to a, the moon. I'd go there even faster than the, uh, I've been. I've been a proponent. Actually, um, uh, universe today published an article of mine. It must be at least ten years ago yep. or more on why we need to go to the, back to the moon. And this was back when we were we had a program to to go to Mars um, and why it was important to go to to the moon first and and to establish a long uh, a long term. Uh, transportation infrastructure between the earth and our nearest nearest neighbor and and to basically create a gateway to the rest of the solar system uh, by doing that i think it's really important to go to mars i think we we need to do that um but i think the first step on the journey to mars should be a permanent human presence on the moon yeah it's i mean i can sort of see in the midterm like something like what we do with antarctica where there is a you know, there's there's a, a base that's permanently staffed. The people are there. They're doing a bunch of really interesting research, but at the same time, it's such a hostile environment, and so you're having to send constant supplies. Right. And the lessons that are learned there will help us with anything else that we want to do out there and out there in space. Um, do you find that sort of what's happening with SpaceX has has had a real impact on sort of people's enthusiasm for space? Do you find, you know, when you do a, a speaking gig or something like that, do you find people's attitudes are kind of changing? Because I'll tell you what I'm experiencing, which is that people seem a little more hopeful now that that they're starting to see some of the promises of science fiction starting to come together with reusable yeah. rockets and whatever's happening with the Starship and that it is pressuring other groups as well to you know maybe catch up and and speed up and change their approach yeah i mean i, I think uh, spacex is doing an incredible incredible job uh technically but it also is doing i think a really amazing job in, from a promotional point of view right it's a, <laughs> i mean it really um the, it, it's a great it's a great show right i mean when those solid when those those uh, boosters come back and land in formation when you launch a, a sports car to space and you have these incredible shots uh, of Starman there driving his, driving his, I mean, pe that people are going to identify with that. Right. And it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's more than uh, well, the sports car is more than a stunt. I think, I think it's uh, it captures the imagination of folks um, and, you know, SpaceX and, and other companies uh, besides SpaceX are delivering on, on the promises that, that they're making making and, uh, you know, I, I think we're on the verge of, uh, you know, some really exciting things in, in commercial space flight. Yeah, I mean, if I mean, we're we're recording this right now before Starship has actually done its 20K hop, before it's actually gone to orbit and even been able to demonstrate that it can actually reenter with this stainless steel system. But if it does, and it is a fully reusable rocket, everything kind of changes then. I mean, what makes sense to launch into space changes it's a it's a dramatic difference do you um you know do you is there in your experience is there anyone you know within nasa within some of the more established groups starting to really kind of think about what that what would be possible with some of these different launch systems 
Yeah, of course. I, th- I think there's a lot of people thinking about that. And I think uh, there's a lot of these companies um, that are, you know, really pushing the limits of what uh, we think is possible. And, uh, and I know it sounds cliche, but thinking outside of the box, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and coming up with, with something new. Um, uh, you know, again, going back to, to the boosters landing and formation together, I would have never, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I would have never thought that was, I would think it was possible. I wouldn't have thought it was a feasible thing to do yeah. uh, uh, up until recently. But And it probably it, wasn't. I mean, you yeah. needed c- computers that could that could handle a, a powered, you know, descent like that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so Christopher Trispec asks, was it scarier going up to space or coming down from space? Uh, well, they're both scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, they're both scary, but I wasn't scared. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, you're in an intense environment. So I had, I had two launches on two different vehicles. They were vastly different from each other. Um, my, my launch on, on Spatial Discovery, uh, you know, you're in this big, massive vehicle that's, you know, shaking violently. And, you know, it was my first space flight. I had a, a, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of things that we as a crew could have done wrong that, you know, would end our, end our mission in, in a spectacular way, but and also end our lives in a spectacular way. So, you know, there was there was a, an intense amount of, of concentration on that. Um, the Soyuz uh, was my second flight. I, I knew sort of what to expect. I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. Uh, I, you know, I had a window right next to my, right next to my head. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Soyuz is not a big massive vehicle. Uh, it's, it's a, it, it almost feels like you're wearing the rocket on your back. And mm-hmm. the biggest surprise for me on, on the Soyuz launch was how much fun it was. I, I literally, I was not expecting to have fun. It was, it's funny, you know, we launched on the 50th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's flight from the same pad that he launched from. And as we lift off, uh, you know, my, my uh, Soyuz commander, Sasha Samokotseyev, is, is making this, you know, speech in Russian, you know, in the words of Yuri Gagarin, we're off. And he's saying all this stuff. But when you listen to the, t- when you listen to the, the tape, the recording of it, in the background, you hear, woo-hoo. And <laughs> <laughs> that's you. That's me. And that was totally I, involuntary, spontaneous. I was like, you know, people said, you know, it's not like the shuttle. When the shuttle lifts off, you feel like you just got released from a slingshot. I mean, I know it looks slow on TV, but it is, you are jumping off that pad and there's no doubt in anybody's mind that you're going somewhere and you're going somewhere fast. Like I was told by people who flew on the Soyuz that it's a lot, you're not even going to really know that you've lifted off. And, and I totally disagree with that. There was no doubt in my mind that we had just lifted off. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, the staging was incredible. You know, if you watch the, the movie Apollo 13, they have the scene when they're launching and, and they stage and all three of the astronauts get thrown forward into the instrument panel and then the engines kick in and they all get thrown back on their seat. That's exactly that. Oh, and wow. I, started, I started laughing because I'm thinking to myself, yeah, Ron Howard got it right <laughs> in all 13. So yeah, that was going to space. Coming back from space, you know, um, we coming back on Space Shuttle Discovery, it wasn't that long after um, Columbia. So there's always in the back of your mind, you're always, um, you know, cognizant that, you know, something can go wrong. Um, but it's, it's, it's for the most part, a benign, a benign reentry, right? You could see out the window, all the, the plasma going by and you realize that, you know, you don't want to be right outside that, right outside that window. Um, but it's, it's pretty much, you know, a smooth, smooth trip back. 
um, I remember I, when I was getting ready to come back uh, on the Soyuz, I was talking to, to Scott Kelly and he, and he said, hey, you know, the only way I could describe it, it's like going over Niagara Falls in a barrel that's on fire. And that's exactly the way it is. But it's followed by a high speed crash uh, at the end. So we got right. When it, everything, you know, it was it was pretty violent. It was about as violent as it gets. I remember uh, one point uh, during the thing when the when the parachute, the, when the the drogue shoots open and you get thrown all over the place. It's like three guys on the end of a towel being whipped in every different direction. I remember uh, Andrei Boroshenka over in the, in the left seat uh, yells out in, in Russian, you know, it's just like an American amusement park ride, but it was, it was more violent than any amusement park ride I've ever been on. And we were all, and there was periodically times when all three of us started laughing and, and we're laughing because we can't believe that we're still alive after what, we just went after what you just went through. Yeah. So, I mean, just to break that down for people, right? Like, as I mean, as you said, with the space shuttle, you know, it, it reenters fairly smoothly and is able to slow down and and then acts like a brick with wings until it can land in in Cape Canaveral. But the but the process of the Soyuz, right? Every part of it is sort of a shock to the system. Yeah. And that landing, where it like what it fires as retro thrusters at the last second and then slams into the ground. Yeah, they call them soft landing jets, and, and but I think what they actually are is they're smoke screens, so you can't see how hard we actually hit. Because I was, uh, I, I think diff different. Uh, it depends on the winds and the orientation of the capsule, and it depends on a lot of stuff uh, of how hard you hit. But I was the nothing surprised me coming back on the Soyuz. I, everything was as violent as it was. It was pretty much what I expected, except for the landing. I couldn't, I couldn't not believe how hard we hit, um, and we we end up. You know, bouncing and rolling over, and, and the other thing people told me is, um, it you're gonna because of your vestibular system being messed up, you're gonna feel like you're you're rolling over, like you're tumbling, and I felt that right away. As soon as we hit the ground, I felt like we're tumbling. But then I saw debris flying in every different direction, and I realized that we are we are tumbling. <laughs> I mean, it was like one of those, uh, you know, rollover crash. We were like crash test dummies in the in the rollover test, but. But it's a great system. Um, you know, obviously we all survived and yeah. um, we, were, we, we came back safely. Uh, it was just, a, it was just a, a lot of excitement along the way. <laughs> um, Arjone asks, uh, we have lots of robots on Mars, but how much more science could astronauts do in the same amount of time or if they work together with the robots? Yeah, I think what we found, and actually what we did on my, my undersea mission on, on Nemo, on Nemo 9, was we did a lot of, uh, combined human robotic exploration that, you know, when we were, again, the, the mission was to uh, practice lunar surface exploration uh, procedures. And so we had all kinds of, of robotic helpers, if you will. And, you know, traditionally we've had human explorers and robotic explorers. And really the only time we've come together are things like, you know, robotic arms. Um, um, but I think what we'll find is that there's, there's a benefit to having robotic explorers and there's a benefit to having human explorers. And when you put those two together, uh, it's really a powerful team. Um, and, you know, with, with the increase in AI and everything else, I think we're going to, we're going to see that more and more. Yeah. I mean, one of the really interesting ideas for even something like say the lunar gateway is you could tell or operate rovers down on the surface of Mars of the moon with essentially no lag. And so you're just, it's like you're right. driving a remote control, buggy around the surface of the moon as fast as you want and with as much responsiveness as you need. And yeah. you can get a lot more science done with that kind of a situation, but not necessarily putting yourself at risk. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, okay, so so on the Weekly Space Hangout uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, one of the uh, co-hosts sort of did a deep dive on space toilets and talked about how, you know, every Soyuz has a space toilet and the space shuttle has a space toilet and the International Space Station has its space toilet. So as someone who has possibly sampled all of them, uh, which one is the least worst? Wow, we're, we're, all, we're 28 minutes into the interview and it's, if you st- it's taking you 28 minutes not to, to get to the space toilet. toilets. I know, I know. Wait, <laughs> just... You just tell. I, I, you know, I think the the Russian solution is a very simple solution, um, and it's very robust. And uh, I think when it comes to to toilets, you, you don't want things to break. And so the more robust uh, you can build it, and the more you can over engineer it, uh, and and put you know or, or you know all kinds of factors <laughs> in there to keep it working. It, it's a really it's a really bad day when the toilet toilet breaks. But sometimes it does. You know, when on SGS one twenty four when we opened up the hatch. You know, Mark Kelly, who was the commander of, of 124, said, hey, any of you guys looking for a plumber? Because their toilet was broken and we were bringing up, they were really happy to see us because we were bringing up a, a part to, to, to fix the toilet. So. Yeah. Um, now, I read uh, Scott Kelly's book and you were on at the same time as he was, right? Up in the station? No, I was uh, I was actually uh, his backup for his first mission. Okay. Right. Uh, and then I flew I flew six ma- six months after his first mission. And uh, I, I wasn't involved in the, in the one. Oh, okay. Okay. I, one of the things that he really went on quite a lot about was how much the quality of the atmosphere affected his ability to do his right. mission yeah, CO2, the, yeah. with the CO2. Yeah. And like he knew right away, he could just feel it, whether the CO2 yep. Uh, yep. was sort of up. So, you know, did you find that that was a real impact on, on you as well? Oh yeah, of course. And and where you feel it is uh, mostly when we're doing um, uh, con- press conferences. Especially, you know, when the shuttle was up there, you could have thirteen people in you know one little space, and all of them are exhaling. <laughs> and so, and and you're you're basically building this big giant cloud of CO two uh, right around your heads. And and you know, you'd start an interview, and about you know fifteen twenty minutes into it, you're starting to get headaches because you're like, okay, we're we're building our own little CO two cloud here. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a factor and, and it definitely affects uh, productivity. Yeah. I, I could just imagine, and you've got, like, I don't think people really understand how busy your day is, how well scheduled everything you have to do is, and you, you know, you're having to be able to think at the same time that you, that you do all this. And so it's right. really hard. Um, yeah, they keep you busy. <laughs> yeah. How, how much free time would you get? Um, so during, during the, the normal work week, not, not, not much, um, we, we'd get like a day and a half off on the, on the weekends. Uh, but, but you're really, when you have time off, uh, a lot of, it depends on, depends on how much, how busy, you know, it goes in cycles, right? You get, you get busy and then it might slow down a little bit, but if you're in a busy time, your, your time off is, is used catching up, right. Or getting ahead, uh, and, and trying to, you know, plan for, for next week. So, but there, there was, there was always time to, to take a moment and look out the window whenever I needed it. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite pictures of, of you is, is looking out the couple of window with your camera, just watching the, the earth go by. Um, I've, you know, what was it like to do photography from the space station? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I was, a a big video videographer. I really enjoyed, you know, video. And I didn't expect that I would be 
doing a lot of still photography went up there. I ended up spending, taking 25,000. Yeah. And so, especially, you know, uh, during my mission was the, was really the first time we started doing the time-lapse. I know Don Pettit did it, uh, uh, you know, before he was, I think he's the only one that really uh, did time-lapse, but he didn't have the cameras that we had. And so I, I'll never forget the first time I set up a, a time-lapse um, and, you know, I took a picture of a hurricane or the auroras. I can't remember exactly what it was and, and how easy it was to, to put that together with the software that we had up there. And I just pulled everybody together and just said, hey, look at this, look at this video I just made uh, with time-lapse. Um, you know, we need to start doing this. This, yeah. is, this is incredible. And obviously it's, it's taken off since then and it's, it's produced some incredible uh, perspective of our planet. And so um, I really in, uh, enjoyed uh, still photography up there. I got really lucky occasionally. I got some incredible shot. I got a shot of a, a me, uh, meteor coming, you know, for going below us. Right. Uh, in per, the Percy's meteor shower. Um, just some beautiful shots of auroras and, and um, you know, and then obviously sunsets and sunrises are always spectacular as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you would think that you know, you're just sort of getting shots of the of the ball that's <laughs> below you, but the light changes, the shadows, yep. the yep. you know the what the weather is doing currently, and and how the sunlight is coming through the water, and and features like that. Yeah, um, it's amazing how much of an artistic perspective the astronauts were bringing to the photography. And I think you're exactly right. You were one of the first who had like the right gear. I know Don is a really accomplished photographer and right. you had a lot of much better gear, better telephoto lenses to be able to take some of these, these, these photos. Yeah, and low light, we had the low light cameras too, that, that, yeah. he, that he didn't have on his earlier missions. He's had it since and, and done spectacular things. Um, but yeah, with the right gear, you're, you're going to get some great shots. Yeah. Um, do you sort of based on that, on that experience, do you think, uh, you know, did you have some recommendations you're able to provide for future astronauts in terms of, of either photography or, or other gear that would you know, be even better up there? Well, you're kind of stuck with the gear that's up there, but, but yeah, I mean, um, we, we all exchange notes and exchange, um, uh, strategies. And, and one of my goals, uh, was, to not just capture the beauty of, of, of the scene, but also the, the emotion of it. Um, and, and, and that, you know, nor back in the day, uh, you know, when, when an astronaut photographer first started out, it was all technical, right? It was all to, to document, you know, different things. And, and it was, you know, most of it was, you know, straight nadir, you know, looking down at the earth. And so um, if, when we're taking, all of the pictures are taken in our spare time, unless we have a specific thing that we're supposed to, to uh, photograph that's on the schedule. But, you know, 99% of all the, the uh, photography, astronaut photography is, is in spare time. And so, you know, a lot of the astronauts really want to take, take an artistic look at it. And I know Apollo Nespoli was a crewmate of mine and he really uh, took a lot of pictures, uh, a lot of beautiful pictures. Um, and, and there's, a, you know, a lot of others um, who really, um, looked at it from an artistic point of view. Um, Arjun asks, uh, how long do you think it'll take for normal people to be needed in space as opposed to super smart specialists? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know how to take that because I consider <laughs> myself fairly normal. Yeah. But, I think you're a super smart specialist, but, <laughs> um, needed in space. Yeah. I think, I mean, we are, uh, I think on the verge of a whole uh, economy in, in, uh, 
in space. Um, I, I'd like to see thousands of people uh, living on the moon. Uh, I think the benefits to the earth of having those, those folks on the moon are going to be tremendous. Uh, and I think there's different skill, skill sets that are going to be needed. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I hope in the next 10 to 20 years that that, that all comes to fruition. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about sort of these, these competing visions that, that Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos are, are laying out there for sort of humankind's purpose? Uh, with Musk really focusing on let's go to Mars and let's use that as a backup plan for humanity. And Jeff Bezos is a lot more about like, let's get the pollution, you know, let's get our manufacturing and resource acquisition off earth and out into space where it won't do any damage. And that sort of allows us to continue growing without, you know, uh, polluting where we live. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, Carl Sagan, I think, said it best when he said, for the, for, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that we need to do everything we can to make sure that the life support systems of Spaceship Earth are functioning properly before we uh, start tampering <laughs> with life support systems of, of other uh, bodies in our solar system. Um, so anything that we do whether it, uh, for space exploration should be uh, with a mindset that uh, we need to take care of, you know, planet Earth uh, first and foremost. And uh, we can't, um, and, I, and, and Elon Musk is not saying this, but there are, you know, we need to get away from any mindset that we're just going to go take over another planet and we'll be, and we'll all be fine because it's not going to work that way. If we can't terraform our own planet, how are we going to terraform another planet? So, um, so I, so I think uh, the philosophy should be that you know we take care, take care of our planet, and um, the technology that comes from the space program uh, then can be applied to to making life better on planet Earth and 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 helping the life support systems here on the planet. Yeah, it was interesting. Like we just did a video on on some of the ideas for trying to keep a million people alive on on Mars. Like, you know, what is the simulation that it would, you know, what kind of food would work? Is there even enough raw materials? And the reality, of course, is that all of those technologies, the hydroponics, the, um, you know, focusing on LED lighting systems, controlled environments to produce a lot more food in a smaller area with minimal pollution makes a ton of sense for here on earth yep. and you know cities that are an enormous yep. number of people compacted in a small area yep. you could build uh greenhouses right in the middle of the city that would keep the food uh close um exactly uh necroticus asks uh, a bit of an odd question but do you know how microgravity affects sleep apnea does the low gravity reduce it or not affect it so That's snoring great... in space that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, I, I, it, it has to. I, I can't imagine that it doesn't affect it. Um, well, I would think that, you know, like you get a lot more uh, fluid buildup in yeah. your nasal area. So, yeah, you could see it having an impact on it. Yeah. But I don't, does it like just shut I, you I, down so you just snore, you know, so you just breathe through your mouth? Or does it like... Yeah, I don't. That's a great question. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'd like to know the answer. Though. <laughs> yeah. Well, and part of it, the reason why you don't know the answer is because the space station is actually really loud, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty loud. Um, it, it's a little bit quieter in the in the sleep quarters. But I mean, you have the sounds of fans and pumps and all that stuff going. And um, yeah, it's not a, it's not a necessarily a quiet place. 
Yeah, yeah. I, ne- I never heard. I can honestly say I never heard anybody snoring in space. Yeah. Even on, even on my shuttle missions, uh, where we're all sleeping in the mid deck, um, or most of us are sleeping on the mid deck, so we're all next to each other. Um, I don't remember hearing snoring. But are you maybe I, just a really deep sleeper? Yeah, I never heard myself snore either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one wanted to tell you. Um, uh, Arjona also asks, is getting a cold in space the absolute worst? So did you ever get any kind of cold or anything like that? Not really. No, I never did. I mean, you feel like you have a cold most of the time because of that fluid shift. And yeah. You feel like you have a little bit of a head cold all the time, uh, but you get like anything else, you just get used to it. Um, did you have any like anecdotes that you want to talk about from, from the book? Any, anything that sort of fairly recently that you've been been incorporated? uh, I'd be happy to share the, the, the philosophy of the book or not the philosophy, but the, my strategy in the book. And so back when I was in my twenties, I had this idea for a novel and, and the novel would follow the central character throughout their life from infancy to old age, uh, to the twilight years. And as that character would mature and their worldview would expand and, um, you know, they'd see, they'd see things differently. They'd see a, you know, a progressively bigger and bigger picture. It would serve as a metaphor for the evolution of society of civilization. And about three or four years ago, it dawned on me that my own life is a literary toolbox overflowing with things I can use. You know, I, uh, back in my early days in the air force, I set nuclear alert, uh, in the cold war, uh, so strapped to my strapped to my aircraft was a, a nuclear weapon that really eventually I would have to employ. employ. Uh, I, I I did fight in combat. Um, I've ejected from an F sixteen you know a split second before I I would have been killed. I've lived on the bottom of the ocean. I've lived in space, and you know through all of these things, it's it's a really powerful tool to talk about things like um, tribalism, uh, parochialism, nationalism. Uh, you know, I had my own faith journey uh, along the way. Um, so, you know, we have these, you know, dancing, intersecting orbits of science and religion and spirituality. Um, obviously, you know, I, I go into really, really um, great detail, not, not detail in, in a technical sense, but in an artistic sense, uh, describing things like the spacewalks and, and watching a sun, sunrise from, from orbit. Um, you know, the, my time, my three weeks on the bottom of the ocean was an incredible uh, uh, window into into our world. And so, the book, the purpose of the book, is not only just from a metaphorical point of view to say where we've where we've come from from an evolutionary point of view, but where we need to go. And I think it's really critically important at this moment in history because I think we are at, a, at an inflection point. I think before us are two paths. Uh, and uh, one path is to continue down the two-dimensional us versus them, uh, uh, you know, win at all costs, you know, profit maximization at all costs, uh, mindset, scarcity mindset, uh, which really helped get us to the point that we're at right now. But it's not; it's no longer appropriate for, uh, as uh, you know, as a, as a um, a map for us to follow. Uh, the other path is to embrace what I think is going to get us to the point where we can thrive as a species, we can, we can reach equal, equilibrium on our planet, uh, live within the planetary boundaries that we have in, in, in peace and in harmony. And that's to, to shift to more of uh, embracing interdependence, taking long-term, a long-term approach to things, uh, profound collaboration, profound collab- uh, 
cooperation, uh, openness, transparency, uh, decentralization uh, of power, uh, and a lot of things like and information and everything else. And I think, um, you know, I, I the reason why I was laughing initially when you when I when you asked me to, to talk about my past and I said I don't know where to, where to start is uh, I start I start my my auto autobiographical narrative that is part of this book, The Floating in Darkness, at the first moment of conception. <laughs> so, As you remember it. Yeah, I, no, yeah, no, I, I remember it vividly. And, and so um, this book is written first person present tense. So it will read like a novel. Um, and it, and it, it allows me to do things like character development and scene development and everything else like, as you would have in a, in a novel. And because I can do that, uh, because I'm, I'm taking this approach, it really uh, is is a very vivid way to be able to bring people along. Um, and, and again, not just experience it from an intellectual point of view, but an emotional and spiritual point of view. It's, I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, you are a retired astronaut, but like when you think about like one, what, one week, 10 days on shuttle, six months on the space station, are fairly small components of of a much larger life that has been in service to your country, in service to knowledge, and and now in service to a certain extent to to kind of all humanity, and it's it's like the the being the getting a chance to be an astronaut part is almost like the the side effect of of creating a very meaningful life that is able to provide that level of, of service. Like, like it, every time I get a chance to talk to astronauts, you know, it's like, it's a no brainer, you know, that they ended up being an astronaut because they've got all these other excellent attributes. It's gotta be kind of amazing to be able to train and work with these people and sort of depend on them for your life. But you know that you can, you know, do you find, yeah, I, you know, like that sort of experience? I'd be interested to sort of, you know, what's like to work with people of that kind of caliber. I think, I think when you're working with people um, that that exhibit on a day to day basis, that level of excellence, it brings out it brings out the best in you. And so it's it's always, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed working with everybody that, that I worked with. I really admired uh, um, the, the folks. And um, and I think th that if you're in a good environment and in a good organization, then people are going to bring out the best in each other. And I think you see that uh, in the space program. And I think the reason why you do see that is because the space program is built on a foundation of awe and wonder. And that's the other point that I'm trying to bring out in this book is that right now, for the most part, our civilization is operating on a foundation of fear, of scarcity and fear. Uh, and what that does is it closes our mind up. It, it, we put walls around each other. We, we limit who we will talk to, who we'll engage with. And what that does is it separates us from the very people that have the solutions to our shared problems. When you, when you look at things from a foundation of awe and wonder, it does the exact opposite. It opens the mind. It, it opens you up to collaboration with people from different you know, ethnicities and nationalities and religions. And it basically optimizes the problem solving set. And uh, we've got some pretty big problems and challenges that we need to face. And the only way we're going to overcome them is by figuring out how to how to work together. And the secret sauce, I'm telling you, I've, I've seen this over and over again. I've learned this. The secret sauce is starting from a foundation of awe and wonder. That's what allowed Cold War enemies to, to help build a space station together. That's what, uh, you know, um, people who are on opposite sides of the space race, people who fought wars against each other. 
that was the jump off point that allowed that incredible accomplishment of humanity to take place. Yeah. Jump off on wonder. Uh, how, like, what is the first way? I mean, like, if you have a person who is sort of hostile towards you, how do you switch them over to awe and wonder? What's your sort of, you know, what's your jujitsu move to, to get them into a state of, of awe and wonder when, <laughs> when people are, you know, maybe a little more, you know, they're shooting from the hip and they're in, in more of a aggro mode. Yeah. I think the first thing is to listen. Um, and to, because we tend we, when we build, when we close ourselves off, we, we tend to shut down the, 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 the things on the side of your head that, that bring in information. Uh, and, and when people are talking, we're just figuring out what we're going to say next to challenge what, what they just said. Um, you know, I, I think what we've done is, is we've, we've established a society where if somebody has a different opinion than you do, then, then they're idiots. <laughs> and, and, and people even that have vastly different opinions uh, have that for a reason. Um, and I truly believe in, in, from the bottom of my heart that the vast majority of the people in the world, I don't know what, you know, 90%, 99%, I don't know what it is, but the vast majority of the people are good people that want to make a positive impact on the planet that um, are open-minded and, and everything else, but they get steered down the wrong paths. And they, and the, one of the most powerful forces on the planet is fear. And so there's a lot of people that are, are, that are using fear to manipulate opinions for their own personal benefit. And there's a lot of people that, are, that have been victims uh, of that mindset, have been victims of that manipulation. And so the first step, I think, in, in communicating with folks who share vastly different opinions of you is to be empathetic mm -hmm. and to try and understand where they're coming from, why they're coming from that, where they have that, and to not assume that you have all the answers. Yeah. Uh, to listen, to actually make sincere questions. Okay, why do you, why do you think that's the case? Yeah. Um, and so, and guess what? You might find out that you're not exactly right. <laughs> yeah. You can actually learn something. So. Yeah. And it can't hurt. I mean, I think that uh, I've I've been really tempted. Um, to do a sort of a series on, on my channel where I do sort of just interview people that have dramatically different opinions than I do. Like, you know, and I'm sure, you know, some of the, some of the, the kinds of things that we see happening on the internet. And I'm just like, you know, someone who like, isn't just being a troll, but someone who genuinely believes something, I would like to just understand, you know, why do you believe what you believe? What, what is the foundation of your entire thought process so that maybe I can figure out where is the spot that maybe, you know, you did go down that path. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, um, uh, maybe we didn't land on the moon, maybe, you know, whatever, but, but maybe you're wrong. Um, and the question is like, what is the, what is that first step? And it just should, even just for me to identify it, to be able to empathize how people got into that situation. I think it would be tricky but it's also very fascinating to just to be able to have that. I'm a real big fan of like the Socratic method to just just ask questions, just keep asking questions until you feel like you completely understand. And you may totally disagree, but at least you can get to the bottom of you. If you can articulate their position as well as they can, at least they feel heard. Yeah. I mean, if, if for nothing else, from an intellect, from a curiosity point of view, yeah. intellectual curiosity, like flat earthers, right? 
I'm really curious to know where the edge is and, yeah. and how much the real estate must cost on the edge because the view must be incredible, right? And yeah. so, I mean, I don't mean to be flipping about it, but, but you know, you, you get to the point where, you know, I, I've orbited the earth, I don't know, 2,800 times or something. And basically, if I get into a conversation with somebody who believes the earth is flat, their, their foundational belief is that I'm lying. Yes. Right? That, I, that I'm making this stuff up. Yeah. Um, and that I'm part of some conspiracy. Yeah. But even still, I, you know, I'd like to know where the edge is. I'd like, you know, I have quite, I, I'm curious to know how somebody can form yeah. that, that concept. And and why why is the the assumption that a person who says that they did this thing is lying is more believable that it's more believable that that you're a liar than you're telling the truth? Like, why is that more believable? Why is it more believable that you'd be lying about that thing? So it's it's again, it's it's very fascinating to me. And and it's something that uh, that I do want to kind of attempt to just try and have some of these open conversations with people who totally disagree with me, as long as they can, you know, not be mean, I think we can get to the bottom of the com of the conversation. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, you know, I, I did something that I'm going to correct right now, because this is part of the problem. I said, if I'm having a conversation with a flat earther. Yeah. Right. So what you see what I did? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah. I, you put them in a box, I right? A label. I labeled somebody. Yeah, I put somebody into a, into a category. And I think one of, one of the biggest things that's causing all these problems is our you know, really, we're really quick to label people. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that labels and what we identify the labels that we identify personally and, and the labels that we identify other people with are a big part of the problem. And so that was, that was an example of a way not to do it. Yeah. So. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I, uh, I, I like that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to when you do get around to, uh, to putting your podcast, some of these, concepts i'm hoping we'll we'll get a chance to uh to, to yeah come so the so the podcast that I'm, that I'm working on right now i've got three three episodes recorded uh and it's called floating in darkness it's going to be a podcast that's centered on the book uh again the purpose of the podcast is to assist the the message of the book in creating a movement creating a community of people who who want to make a difference and want and want to strive towards unity of, of the species yeah um Let's see. Uh, Janelle Duncan is asking, is there an audio version planned? Of the book? Yeah, yeah. No, so, certainly. With, with Orville Perspective, um, I had an audio audiobook, um, I had an uh, e-book, and then I had an enhanced e or have an enhanced e-book. And the enhanced e-book has, I don't know, 20 or 30 hours of videos and interviews and everything else. And I, I imagine that we'll probably do the same thing with Floating in Darkness. Um, uh, let's see. Got a couple more questions. Um, Nancy asks, uh, if you had not pursued being an astronaut, what career path would you have pursued following your military service? Was it a, like, is, is it an either or? Like once you accept a position from NASA, does that sort of take you out of, of what you're doing in the military? Um, yeah, I, I stayed in the military for nine years after I was, uh, so I was a military astronaut for nine years and then I, um, I transitioned to civil service. But it, regardless, it takes you out of, the normal flow of a military career. There are some astronauts that after they, they um, were done being astronauts, they went back to the military and picked up uh, basically where they left off. But it's, it's very difficult to do that because you've you know, lost a number of years um, uh, to do that. So what would I have been, what would I have done uh, after my military career if I was not an astronaut? I, 
I, I'd like to think I'd be doing the same thing. I'd be trying to communicate, uh, me, you know, messages of unity and collaboration and, uh, and a bigger picture perspective. Obviously, I wouldn't have the, uh, the gift, if you will, of, of seeing with my own eyes the planet from space. But again, uh, the main tenet of the orbital perspective is you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. And I would, I'd like to think that I would have had uh, some of that perspective without having gone to space. The high altitude perspective. From, yeah, from, I think that's yeah. that helps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I got one last question I want to hit you with, and then we'll we'll let people figure out how to find out more. Um, uh, so our gamer, uh, sorry, fifteen gamers Haven says, "What's the best thing to do to become an astronaut?" So if a person is young and they and yeah. being an astronaut is a path they want to go on to, what steps should they take? Yeah, I, I think the. The best advice, and I, I get asked this a lot, and, and I really do think this is um, the best advice I can give, is to find something that you truly, truly love to do and to be the very, very best you can be at it. Because what all astronauts have in, in common is they've excelled in, in their chosen field. And we've had astronauts from many, many different walks of life, teachers, chemists, uh, veterinarians, um, the list goes on and on. Uh, so what they all have in common is that they've excelled in, the, in their chosen field, but, they, but uh, also uh, it also helps to have that be in a technical field uh, because a lot of the skill set that you need to be an astronaut has a technical aspect to it. Um, so, you know, engineering, science, uh, obviously the, the piloting that we, that we do um, uh, is, is also very important. So um, I, I, think, I think that our space program is hopefully going to become more and more international. Uh, so, um, understanding other cultures, understanding, you know, being able to speak different languages, I, I think is also very helpful. Uh, and, you know, I can't say enough about having a good math background. <laughs> so, math is important. That's, uh, that's what saved, uh, Watley on, on Mars, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and that's why I think like just that idea of becoming an astronaut is sort of a side effect of, of leading a meaningful life that, you know, the other thing about doing what you truly love to do is not everybody's going to become an astronaut. There's yeah. there, there frankly is a, a great deal of luck involved becoming an astronaut. It's, it's kind of like winning the lottery sometimes and not everybody wins the lottery. And if you're left with a career that you, that you love, you're going to be, you're doing, doing yeah. pretty good. I, but, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of people don't do that. They, they, they think, okay, I need to check this box to this box and this box to become an astronaut. I don't want to do any of this stuff, but I feel like I need to do that so that I can become an astronaut. They don't become an astronaut and now they're left with something they don't like doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, all right. So I want to, again, let people know, you know, if these themes are important to you. If this sounds like a, like a story that's going to be fascinating to you, uh, go to, and I'll put a link on, in the show notes and, and a bunch of places, but go to uh, Publishizer. So it's like publish and then I-Z-E-R.com. Um, or I Z E R if you're an American, yeah. um, uh, slash floating, uh, dash dot in darkness. Um, but just do a search for floating in darkness and I'm sure you'll, you'll be able to, yeah. to find the, 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 I guess you don't call it a Kickstarter, a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and you're looking to, and I, I really like this format that you're looking to raise, you raise some money so that you can prove to publishers that there's a market there and then turn around and shop it around to 161 publishers to see who bites. Right. Right. So if we, if we hit our targets, uh, the, the, the platform pitches, pitches it to a number of publishers. The more pre-sales we have, the, the, the better 
luck we'll have with uh, getting the type of publisher that'll get the word out uh, to the greatest extent possible. And you could also find it just going through to my website, rongarin.com. There's a, a link there for books. Floating, click on Flowing in Darkness and, and it'll take you there as well. Fantastic. And there's well, a, lot of, you know, a lot of great um, um, packages there. Yeah. So autographed versions, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, well, Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, really excited to, to see what happens next. And I really appreciate the uh, message that you're putting out there. I think it's, uh, you know, coming uh, at this time, it's great to hear more voices looking to kind of uh, provide more introspection and sort of awe and wonder. And I think that's, yeah. uh, it's the perfect well, time for it. Thanks, Fraser. And, and this this whole thing, this whole book, is, it's a collaboration of community. So uh, this is not just me writing a book. It's it's together, all of us trying to get a message out into the world. So Perfect. I really... All right. Thanks, Ron. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us today, watching. Thanks to the moderators. Thanks to uh, all of the people who asked their questions. I hope I was able to strike the right balance as opposed to hogging Ron's time for the entire uh, episode. I got a chance for a bunch of you to to answer questions. Uh, no plans for next week, so it'll probably just be a solo QA. So uh, bring your questions for next week. All right, uh, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we will see you all next week. And I'm sure I will cut this off at the wrong point. Let's try now.